This is In the Trenches, Broadcast 30. Welcome to In the Trenches, where entrepreneurs, artists, writers, designers, inventors, warriors, and leaders share their stories of doing the hard, creative work that impacts all of our lives. Let the journey inspire you to do something worthwhile, build something bold, and create your life's work. And now, your host, Tom Morgus. Welcome back, everyone, to another broadcast of In the Trenches. Today's guest is my friend Charlie Gilkey, and he is the founder and CEO of Productive Flourishing, a company and website that helps professionals, leaders, executives, and really all-around instigators take meaningful action on the stuff that matters. Productive Flourishing is one of the top websites on the topics of planning, productivity, creativity, and team development. He just recently wrote and published, uh, released a book called The Small Business Life Cycle, which helps people navigate the unique life cycles of small and micro businesses so they can make better and more aligned choices about how to take meaningful action and drive their businesses forward. Charlie's been featured across numerous media outlets like Inc., Fortune, The Guardian, Lifehacker, Copyblogger, Problogger, and The Domino Project. He's also a sought-after speaker event facilitator, and teacher. Essentially, Charlie's been everywhere and done everything. So beyond that, too, Charlie has a background in Army logistics, uh, was uh, uh, deployed to Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2004, and is completing his PhD in philosophy. So yeah, that's just a bit about Charlie, and uh, we're going to get more into all the stuff he's done, but thank you so much, Charlie, for being here with us today. Thanks for having me, Tom. So yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background. You got a, you've done about a million things. So um, you, you, let's talk about a little bit about how you got to Productive Flourishing, I guess. Yeah, well, I got to Productive Flourishing. Well, the short story here is um, I got there by way of frustration um, because what I noticed was there wasn't a really um, good way of understanding getting things done in the way that I understood it um, at the time. So I was a graduate student in philosophy. And I was working towards completing my PhD in philosophy at the same time that I was an army logistics officer, as you mentioned. And, you know, I ran into the problem of having way more to do than I had time available. And so I, I did what I always did. It's like, all right, people have written about this. I'm not the only like guy that's had this problem. So I started reading a whole bunch of stuff about it. And I found myself translating so much of it in a way that made sense to me. And I was like, you know. Why not share that translation with other people so that they don't have to do it? Again, I'm a teacher at heart. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's how Productive Flourishing started. And it was it, it had a few other horrible names and variations before it ended up where it is now. But yeah. it's it, one way to see it is it's just that um, that synthesis of personal development and productivity for those of us who see ourselves as a professional creative. And what that means is basically our livelihood depends upon the way we harness our creativity and make change happen in the world. Absolutely. That's really fascinating. So you mentioned you went through some different iterations of this. How long have you actually been developing uh, productive flourishing? Oh, wow. So Productive Flourishing and the name that it is now, I believe, goes back to 2007. Um, okay. And there's around probably another year, 15 months of scratching before I ended up there. Um, and so I've been doing this for a long time. Interestingly, the first time I ever heard of a blog was in 2005 when I was deployed um, because 
Um, well, I won't go into the details, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I was assigned a report that um, about the way a soldier was using the blog while overseas, and I was like, "What's a blog?" Um, and that was actually the seeds of you know where I am today. Interesting. So I guess that story worked out uh, at least for the better for you. <laughs> yeah, it did. Well, it worked out better for me. The soldier, you know, it worked out well for them too, but it's just fascinating. The things that, you know, if you're just paying attention and if you're an archivist, it's like, you know what? Oh yeah. I remember hearing about a blog three years ago. So one of the first questions I asked is what's a blog and how are people using blogs, which got me on to, you know, at that time, Wow, that's 2004. There weren't that many like big players and names. It was a completely different landscape at the time. Um, but that's how that got started. And well, we can go on and on and how that got started. But you know, yeah, no, no, no. I, I think that's pretty interesting. So I guess y- y- that that planted the seed. Uh, what made you move then from military? From you were in the army, deployed. You did all that. What made you want to go then into specifically start a blog, specifically get into the online world and, and start developing something like that? Like, was, was there an, as, as opposed to maybe something more conventional? Um, I needed an outlet. And it was just one of those easy sort of like, why not start there? Like, it, it played to a lot of things that I was interested in already. And the barrier to entry was really low. Um, even then, it was really low. It's way, way lower now. And so starting something conventional would mean that I would have to figure out, like, you know, cost and business planning. And, um, you know, I'd have to figure out, well, remember what where the problem started. Like, I already had right. a whole lot of time. Like, I had the time problem, right? So starting, my thought was starting another conventional route was just going to make that problem worse. Right. Um, it turns out that you know starting a blog and starting a business um, makes it worse no matter what you do. But there, I guess there are levels of worse. <laughs> sure, that's fascinating. So, how do you think that uh, your background in the military prepped you for what you're doing today? Wow, um, that is one of the critical parts of who I am, and so it's it's like asking how your dad prepped you to be to be a person at a certain point it's hard to to draw the distinction but i think it's given me a lot of advantages in the sense of it's given me the perspective both the technical skills that you learn from being a military leader especially in logistics um, but all you know all of the leader all of the officer corps and senior nco corps learns you know planning and people management things like that um, so that was a technical side of things, but just the personal resilience and the ability to stick with something when it got tough or when it was awkward or uncertain, um, those, were, those were huge advantages. And I could say 100% were not for my service and my experience. Yeah, it is unlikely that I would be where I am. And I would likely still be, you know, just teaching in an academic university, which, you know, isn't that bad, but it's not the version of the ideal life that I'm living now. Sure. So as as far as this your your business, Productive Flourishing and what you guys do and, and all that, um I'm curious. I I noticed your name, which is fascinating because I was doing some research on you or or I was doing some research on something else and I saw your name and I, I dug into it and you were featured in the Domino Project and, and in your bio you mentioned it too. And I at the time I didn't know. I, I kind of followed the Domino Project towards the end of its life, but I had no idea. So Tell me a little bit about that. How'd you how'd you make it into the Domino Project? Ooh, that's been a while. Um, 
I don't know, actually. I don't remember. <laughs> um, it was one of those things where I was I was invited to contribute, and I did. Um, it was that easy. So it turns out that having um, an established platform like Productive right. Flourishing opens up a lot of opportunities like this. Like, hey, you want to write about this there? And I'm like, um, but of course I want to write about it. Like, yeah. <laughs> and so it turned out that way. So, um, wow. When was that that? That feature, 2010 maybe? Yeah, I think it must have been about that time. Wow, that seems like a lifetime ago. Um, <laughs> and so I believed I was invited to contribute, and I jumped at the opportunity. You know, Seth is one of my mentors from afar, and we've had conversations. Um, and so I was like, sure, this is totally something I want to be a part of. Yeah, no, that's very cool. And so in that time then, as you've developed this platform and you've built this business out of it, uh, it sounds like you've, you, you're you know, a sought-after speaker, you're an event facilitator, you're a teacher, you've been featured on the Domino Project, you've obviously been featured in all these other um, hugely popular and, and very large uh, media outlets. Um, I guess how'd you how'd you this is probably a loaded question how'd you do it all you know um, it's probably too too vague but I'm curious like how where do you start um, at building that kind of foundation to get featured in all these different places one relationship at a time absolutely one relationship and, at a time and so it's just connections you know I, and so there was a somewhat early advantage thing going on because I, when I started the blog like it was probably the third wave of bloggers. And so I got in early enough that the web was still small enough that people can talk. And so, for instance, the you know people at Copy Blogger, for instance, I love Copy Blogger Brian Clark, Sonia Simone. Like we've had relationships that gone back, and I'm one of those guys that can say, I remember when you just had 800 followers, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and where it wasn't the mega empire that it is now, right? And so preserving those relationships and fundamentally, it just all comes down to people and taking really good care of people. Absolutely, I like that. So tell us a little bit more about your book, The Small Business Life Cycle. I bought it, um, read it. I thought it was actually really um, fascinating, a, a really interesting look at uh, you even, you know, I think I mentioned it in the intro, micro businesses, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is great because it is, it, I guess I'll preface and, and say my thoughts on it first, but I thought it was fascinating because it looked at the perspective or looked at business from the perspective of really the bootstrapper or, or the person, you know, doing the lean startup that it's been that and, and essentially saying that this is a different life cycle than say a more conventional or larger business that's been established or something like that. Is that about right? That's, that's really about right. So, I mean, all businesses, um, regardless of the industries, they have different life cycles. Um, and you can kind of look at what, what type of business is this, and there are going to be predictable trends. And when you've been consulting and advising and paying attention long enough, you see those trends. The interesting thing about um, bootstrap small businesses, including micro-businesses, is that um, a lot of the pains that they have um, – happen in stage three, which is, you know, the crucible stage after they've been in the business, let's say, oh, between three to five years, precisely because they didn't have the systems and processes and basically management from the beginning. And the cost of not having managers and management functionality catches up with them down the road. This is different than, say, a a company that starts with a lot of funding and pulls on the managers early because they have all of that. But what turns out to be their problem is finding end customers. Um, you know, first, if you're talking about the tech startup world, a lot of times and 
I get in trouble for saying this sometimes. A lot of times, the customer of those tech startups is not the people using the product, but the people they want to buy that company out. So the end customer is Google, not you. Mm-hmm. Um, and is quite transparent once you start seeing their decision-making patterns. In a bootstrapped small business, the end customer is always the customer. <laughs> it's always that person, and they have them from day one. Because they don't have the money up front, if you don't have the customers or at least the prospect of a customer in a short amount of time, you go out of business very quick, right? Because businesses, no matter what industry they're in, go out of business for one and only one reason. They run out of money. Now, Mm -hmm. the reasons they run out of money are quite different. (laughs) Sure. So I guess I'm curious. How do you view maybe the start of productive flourishing in uh, in that framework how did you did you bootstrap it the same way? And can you tell us a bit about that? Oh yeah, totally bootstrapped it the same way. And so um, it's one of those things where when you write um, perspectives like this or you write treatises like this, you have to make sure that it's not just your world that you're seeing, but that you see enough representative samples. Um, but I started productive flourishing without much of a real like business plan. It you know mm. this was nowhere on my map. It wasn't like you know. Being, you know, actually it would have went this way, you know, get your degree in philosophy while you're in, you know, while you're a logistics officer and then at some point start a business. It wasn't that way. So I fell into it backwards and I actually had Mm -hmm. customers before I really was like, oh, right, I have customers, I have clients like, you know, one of my um, one of my sort of behind the scenes client had such great success that she said, you know what, Charlie, I have this project. I'm going to write about it, and I'm going to say that you helped me out with it. So you got about three days to get some type of shingle up. <laughs> um, and so that was how my, my shingle officially went up. Um, so, you know, started out in the very same life cycle of not knowing what I was doing, like probing around, figuring out, oh, how do you do customer development? How do you do sales? Like, how do you figure out what they want? So and so forth to having a few things, accidental things, I'll note, that took off. Mm-hmm. Um, writing those takeoffs. And as I, you know, as I was going along, as I mentioned earlier, you know, not just necessarily making relationships with people just so I could use them down the road, but legitimately caring, like, Yo, Tom, you're doing something really great. Like, tell me more about it. What can I do to help? Like, ooh, I'm going to feature that just because it's cool. Right. And one relationship at a time, one relationship at a time, and then ending up where, you know, and I'll be quite honest, like last month to this, well, almost to this day, um, last month I hired a business manager because my business had reached the point that I had taken it as far as I could without mm-hmm. having someone else manage the business. And at that point, it was bottleneck. My 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 growth was capped um, because you can't really be steering the boat like you know looking in the distance and steering the boat at the same time. You normally bungle both, and it was time to let some features of it go. Now, from an operationalist, which you'll understand this, like the last thing that you'll let go in your business is the thing that you're best at. Um, and I'm really good at ops. I've been doing this for a long time. I've been managing people on projects and doing crazy stuff for going on 20, 25 years. So turning that over to somebody else was a big step, but it was also the right step for the business, which, you know, we still have some kinks to work out to get through stage three before we're in stage four, but it's looking, you know, like it's not going to be that, that long just because we have so much in place. We just got to glue it together in the right way. Okay, so you you so curious, just curious about that. Well, you'd say that you guys are are about stage three because I would have thought that you were actually already at 
stage four or even out of the small business life cycle and maybe in the medium business life cycle if that exists? <laughs> yeah, um, I would put us um, in the last sort of third of stage three. Okay, interesting. Um, well, now, remember in this life cycle, so to, to brief yeah. people who haven't read it, right? there are five different sure. stages of it. The aspirational stage, which is when you're thinking about starting a business. The stage, stage one is the entry stage in which you finally start your business. Stage two is when it takes off. Stage three is when it gets stuck. Stage four is when you figure out how to get it unstuck and you can cruise indefinitely. It's a life cycle because we'll do things like have one business model that works really well and do something crazy like write a book that goes that gets really popular that alters your business model and the way your business operates and so you can be um, you can alter your your businesses where you are in the business life cycle just because you do things like that so to sort of riff on what you were saying there Tom is it depends upon which aspect of our business you're looking at if you're looking at the coaching model that I've been doing since 2008 yeah, that's well into stage four. I mean, there's just tweaking mm-hmm. that we're doing, but I don't have to do a whole lot of work. It's at the maintenance phase. If you look at the component of our business that's around authorship and writing books, that's still really new. Like, actually doing that is still really new. So you end up in sort of a weird place. Um, but every time you have a major change to your business model or the key players within your business model, you're going to alter where you are in your life cycle. Um, and so it's just going back and doing the work all over again, or, you know, from our background is just, you go back into training again. There you go. Absolutely. It's kind of fascinating to hear that though, because I, I think when I read it, I didn't, I, I didn't think about applying it to really, um, almost like iterations within the business itself, mm-hmm. you know, like that there would be, you know, maybe specific, um, products or or what what have you that might lead to a, a product might blow up or and lead to its own kind of life cycle or changing maybe a dynamic a, a part of the company and, and kind of looking at that product or, or service um, as its own uh, small business life cycle but is, is that about right then that you really yeah. that is an appropriate way to look at it it's a it's a very appropriate way to look at it now, the challenge of the model is that it's a fractal a fractal is something like a snowflake or it's a pattern that we see where the more you zoom into different levels of perspective the more you see the same pattern repeating like a snowflake mm-hmm. if you look at the snowflake's larger structure and zoom down 10 you know 10 times you see the same structure of the snowflake at that level of at, at that level so you can look at it in the sense of, okay, this particular product line that I have is going through its own life cycle, um, and it looks very similar. Or this, divi- this division of our business is going through that life cycle. And fundamentally, you could look at yourself as an entrepreneur and where you are in the life cycle. So it can be applied in a lot of ways, but I had to pick a place, so I just picked the place that was the most um, that I can that I can get the grip and explain the best. Sure, that's that's interesting. I, I think that's fun, interesting to uh, the the concept of applying it to even the entrepreneur him or herself. Uh, it makes me wonder if I'll ever break out of stage one, the, the part where you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> you will. You will. Um, it's just, you know, and so you've read the book, but the thing about stage one, sure. no matter which level of the fractal you look at, is, you know, the the inconvenient truth is you have no idea what you're doing. You really don't. And that's yeah. the beauty of it, though, is that there's this freedom when you understand that, like, I don't understand it all, and I'm learning a lot. And the key metric in any stage one is learning. That's the mm-hmm. key metric. Not 
you know, um, the way I've said it before is the key metric of stage one is learning, not earning. Um, earning comes later in, you know, mid-stage two and stage three and stage four. But if you don't learn the lessons that you need to in stage one, it gets really awkward. Let's imagine, for instance, that you do something really cool. And the next thing you know, like two weeks later, you're on Good Morning America. Um, and you're having to talk about what it is that you do and how long you've been doing it. And you're still in the stage one set and that you haven't really nailed your story and you don't understand your story very well. You're on the stage in front of millions of people potentially making a huge, you know, huge mistake here. Um, far better to learn those in the isolated environments where you're talking to someone at a business conference and, you know, maybe you're talking to 10 people and you see their feedback and maybe you're talking to 50 people and you see their feedback so that when it's time for you to be on that stage, you have your positioning figured out, you have your story figured out and you can tell a, a powerful, coherent story as opposed to rambling. Now, I use this one because I've actually had some clients that were on the fast track and they weren't prepared for the level of visibility that they got. And it was um, a pretty intense time for both of us as I was coaching them and prepping them for what they needed to do um, to be successful. But it reminded me of all the other people who had a few years to figure that out and were able to do well. So I guess that's interesting because that, that brings up its own question before I get back into kind of what we were talking before. But as far as they're concerned, those, you know, those clients you mentioned, how how did it turn out for them? Was it detrimental to them? W- would it have been better if they had taken some time or or because they were put into a uh, I guess a position or predicament, you know, where they had to to rise to the occasion, were they able to and then at at this and in that I guess in that respect was a kind of a way to fast track their learning. It was a way to fast track their learning because they had structure and perspective. And you know, normally as an advisor I don't say because I was there to help them. But it did give them years of perspective on, you know, just some key things to watch out for. You know, don't get googly eyed on the camera. If you don't know, say you don't know, don't make something up, right? Just some of the coaching and perspective that you learn from doing it. So that helped them be successful. I don't know what it would look like without, you know, this sort of build up that we had. Um, so it's hard to say. I just know that it would have been really, really stressful for them. Right. So going back a little bit, to the small business life cycle and kind of your background. I'm curious, you know, when you, you mentioned something uh, that you're changing roles right now, essentially, mm-hmm. is, is that about right? Okay. So how, so tell us a bit about that, like transitioning from being the guy, uh, and again, tell me if I'm, I'm describing this wrong, but the, the guy at the head of it, right? That the steering the ship that's, that's making the calls, that's operating it. It's essentially you're your own chief operating officer. And then mm-hmm. is that what you basically you're, now you're hiring somebody to be your your COO, and you're taking over essentially more of the ownership role? Is that about right? And and, and tell us about about that. Yeah, well, there are four key dimensions of any business, right? So there's the um, strategy realm, there's the mm-hmm. operational realm, there's the marketing realm, and the financing realm, or uh, in the financial realm. And we have you know in the corporate world we have languages or we have titles around those. So we have the CEO, the COO, the CMO, which is chief marketing officer, and then the chief financial officer. Um, Really what it is, is because I've been straddling um, and and stuck into the management of my business, um, I haven't been able to be quite the CEO that I can be. And so it's stepping into that and doing more more deeper levels of strategy, planning, coordination, um, 
And it's largely making sure that we're setting up things so that I'm doing what I do best and not maintaining other things. For instance, you know, I've got people on my team right now that are scheduling other appointments. I've got people, you know, I've got my business manager who's right now coordinating other projects with my teammates so that I can be on this call and just focused on the call. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the key things that I do, I'm especially the outward facing ones are only going to be like, I'm only going to do those more. Um, I'm only going to be a better um, advisor. I'm only going to be a better speaker. I'm only going to be a better writer and interviewee and things like that because I can let go of the rest of it and let um, a business manager um, handle that. And since part of your business was started via uh, your coaching, if, mm-hmm. if I'm saying that right, if it really, if, if that is the truth, that's how I, I perceive it. Um, would you? Are you being coached right now by somebody that's that's um, advanced in that level, maybe relative to you? I am being coached, but to be honest, I'm not paying for it. <laughs> I mean, oh, the nice. reason I say that is that um, I. You mentioned earlier the keys to success, or maybe you didn't, but I'll say it that way. is relationship by relationship, but it's also figuring out those people around you that are going to be your growth partner or your growth pack. And I'm, you know, I'm very fortunate to be to be a part of a growth pack in which we're talking about these things. We're co-mentoring and co-coaching and co-developing um, each other, um, which is really powerful. Um, and so, um, I do have some mentors in the sense of, you know, asking like, hmm, for this given problem, what would they tell me to do? And right. then just having the personal, you know, accountability, discipline, and, and wherewithal to actually do it. Um, and so, but. I'm not hard-headed in the sense of like when I see a point in which um, counsel is needed, I'll hire somebody real quick. I've done it in the past. Like, hey, I need some help on this. I need some help on pricing on just this particular piece. Find the right people to do it. Get the counsel I need to. Incorporate it. Drive on. Absolutely. So as a creative entrepreneur, essentially, which is really, I think, what you are to a degree, mm-hmm. um, you're constantly really challenging uh I, you know, I, I'm going to think about the best way to put this. I'd say as a creative entrepreneur, you're constantly challenging various paradigms or challenging whatever existing status quo is out there um, against the bigger players and, and what have you with your various products, whether with your book or with, with your business. As far as that's concerned then, what are you working on right now that you would say is – what is the scariest thing you're working on right now for you? Hmm. Part of it is team development, which is a behind-the-scenes thing, is learning to let go and mm-hmm. trust that other people um, are going to be able to, in time, um, do what I do better. Um, so that's, you know, just to be honest right now, that's the scariest internal thing is turning mm-hmm. over the keys and saying, you know what, I built it up this far. Here you go. Mm-hmm. Um the rest, though, the, the broader mission is just reminding people that they are far more powerful than they give themselves credit for. You know, they, they don't need necessarily motivation and things like that. They, they do need tools. They need perspective and things like that. But I think if I had to look at what the big enemy is that, that, that we're working against, the big enemy is just this idea that people have that they're not ready or maybe somebody else can do it, or they're not good enough, all of which is shadow crap, right? I mean, the only time, the, what, what separates leaders from everybody else, a lot of times, is just the fact that the leaders stand up and shake, whereas everybody else decided to sit in their chairs and shake. Um, oh, I like and, that. 
And so it's it's that main difference. And so I'm really here to help motive, motivate. I just said people don't need, but just remind people that the biggest act that they have to do is learn to stand up and figure it out once they've stood up versus figuring it all out from the beginning. Um, that's, you know, from a business perspective, that's actually a challenging message because if you tell people they've got what they need, why do they need you? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that that's one of those funny challenges that it's like, oh, yeah. Um, there's still room for tools. There's still room for perspective. There's still room to get to get powerful people together so that they remind each other and they mirror off of each other and get things going. Um, later this year, I'm going to be working on another book. Um, so, um, you know, this year, I guess that was one of those big, big things is that um, getting getting that book shipped the way that I did it, not knowing nearly what I should have and being caught my pants down and all the story that's around the book. Um, that was a really big thing. Um, this quarter, it's been hiring a business manager. Next quarter, it's going to be the next book. Um, quarter four, it's going to be, well, there's a project I, can't, I don't want to say too much about because I've got to make sure that we can do it. Um, sure. But I, I look at it from a level of like, for me, um, what major things can we do this quarter that will really stretch us? And just really looking at, you know, okay, that's what we're going to do for this quarter. And um, a few years ago, I recognized the power of, of that sort of idea of stretching your comfort zones or expanding your comfort zones. Because the reality is, if you're doing great things in the world, you're always going to be uncomfortable about something. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not to get you know out of your comfort zone, because you're always going to have a comfort zone, but it's expanding the things that makes you uncomfortable. Um, and so a couple of years ago, I went on a program for once a week, I had to do something along three different dimensions that made me uncomfortable. I had to create something that that was challenging that I put it all out on the field and that I was scared about. I needed to connect with somebody that made me uncomfortable and I needed to consume something that was just outside of my familiarity or comfort or comfort level. And I had to do that every week. And over the course of that year, you know, with all the connections I made and all the people that I met and it just turns out that, you know, it's very hard to make me uncomfortable picking up the phone and talk to somebody. Interview, like if you would have emailed me 10 minutes before this interview and said, hey, want to do an interview, if I would have had the time available, would have been able to jump up and do it because I've expanded the comfort my comfort zone so much that it's like, you know what, I could still perform. So um, it's a bit of a game of upping the stakes, not opening stakes, just to up the stakes, but looking at a, at a more strategic level of, okay, what are the major things that we can do that are going to um, stretch what we can do and really make, our, make us be our best selves? Because when we look at peak performance, it actually doesn't, happen if you're just complacent and in your comfort zone. And it doesn't happen if you're stretching too big. It happens in that nexus between things that you're comfortable with and things that you're uncomfortable with, things that are just outside of your performance zone. And then when you find that sweet spot in between those, it's where your magic is going to happen. Um, The trick is looking up and planning out and making sure that you're always at least saying, like, what am I going to do so that I'm in that that peak zone and embracing that uncertainty and the and the risk of failure and the risk of ridicule and so on and so forth day in, day out. Constantly push boundaries. And it sounds like you guys are, are doing that. You're you're challenging the paradigms and you're you're obviously if you with that mindset of by 
by looking at everything quarterly almost and saying how can we expand and, and push and challenge the status quo. It sounds like you're doing just that. So that's really, really fascinating, uh, you know, from a perspective of just looking at your company and what you guys are doing. So that's really incredible. Uh, Charlie, thank you so much for coming on the show today and for this conversation. Is there any place where people can reach you or you'd like people to check you out? The best place to reach me is ProductiveFlourishing.com. Um, that's all roads lead back to <laughs> lead back to there. So um, if sure. you're curious and you want more tools and aids and just figure out what we're about, that's where to go. And I really appreciate you having me on the horn today. And that wraps up In the Trenches, Broadcast 30. If you want to check out the show notes, just go to TomWorkis.com slash Broadcast 30. As always, this is Tom Workis. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Thank you for listening to In the Trenches. Your creative work doesn't stop here. Join the resistance, the small but growing army of entrepreneurs and artists putting a dent in the world at www.tommorkis.com. Never fight alone. Join the resistance.